Good morning. The Bible reading today is from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 19 to 44, and it's found on your Pew Bibles on page 1154. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as Adam in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. Yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. For there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined. And to each kind of seed, he gives its own body. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies, and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind, and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, the stars another, and star differs from star in splendor. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Thanks, Pip. Good morning, everyone. 
I haven't met you, my name is Nathan. Welcome to those who are in the building. Welcome for those who are watching online or to those watching out in the courtyard. We're going to pray, but can I encourage you to um, just keep that passage open if you've, you've found it, because it's a long chapter and uh, we didn't get to read it all, but I will be referring to the whole thing as we work through it. So it'd be good if you could uh, be able to follow me as I do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all the good gifts that you've given to us. Thank you for this, uh, the gift of your word, and in particular, the gift of this passage. And we just ask this morning, Lord, that you might give us hearts and minds and ears that are able to receive what it is you have uh, to impress upon us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I wonder, what is your relationship to time? Have you ever thought about that question before? For instance, do you often find yourself kind of thinking longingly about the past, about the way things once were, the way things used to be? There is a kind of power to nostalgia and to our memories, isn't there? A real kind of power. So are you someone that likes spending time recalling past experiences? Or perhaps you're more of a kind of living in the moment kind of person. So you're kind of uh, you're, you're most comfortable when you're following your instincts and your impulses and you're willing to take things as they come and throw caution to the wind and kind of go where it blows. There's a nice kind of freedom to that approach, right? Living in the moment. Well, perhaps your thought life is most often consumed with pondering the future about what's coming next you always seem to be kind of making plans and thinking ahead. And so you'll, you'll make your plans and then you'll come up with contingencies for those plans and then you'll come up with a backup option for the contingencies of those plans and on and on. <laughs> but at least you're going to be prepared. Past, present and future. I wonder which one of those you tend to fall into in the way that you approach time. Of course, it's never just going to be one way, it's, it's always a mix of the three, and yet, oftentimes we have a particular bent, don't we? A, a happy place, a comfort zone, a way of approaching time that just kind of feels more right to me. I mean, the truth is, there's not really a right or wrong way, all of them have their strengths and weaknesses, they've actually all got a place. But it's interesting to think about those three different ways of thinking about time, even in just the way it's related to uh, our series over the last couple of weeks. For instance, a couple of weeks ago with Scott, if you were with us, you might have heard him talk about salvation and forgiveness and the way that, that, those, that those things are granted to us when we are united to Christ's death, we are, when we're in Him, in His death. That means God no longer holds your past against you because it was held against His Son instead. Last week, uh, Bruce explored with us what it means to be united to Christ's holiness. It means that in this moment, we've actually been set apart, sanctified. We are now in right standing with God for a purpose and at the same time, it also means we're being transformed right now, more and more, into the image of who we now are. 
Today, in this last week of our series, we're looking at being united to Christ in His resurrection. And the way that, that when that happens, when we understand what that means, it actually radically reshapes the hope that we hold for the future, past, present and future. Now, in order to do that today, we've, we've got quite a passage before us. It's a behemoth of a passage from 1 Corinthians 15, and it's, it's big, but it's magnificent. And it's one of the, easily one of the most significant passages in the entire Bible on the subject of resurrection. It's like the go-to chapter in the Bible. And I mean, as, as we speak this morning, and as we prayed already about our, our youth, they're on camp this week, and they're spending the whole week just unpacking this one chapter of Scripture. That's how big and amazing it is. We just get to do it today, which is why we didn't actually read the entire passage. It's 58 verses long. But can I encourage you, take some time this week and actually read through the whole thing yourself and just meditate on, on how amazing it is because it really is a magnificent passage. One of the things I, I find striking about it is the way that even though resurrection, like it's clearly a future-focused subject, and even still Paul is actually able to, to draw both the past and the present and include it in the picture he presents for us here. You see, what happened then guarantees what's next, and that reshapes the what now. Then, next, and now. Past, future, and present. Resurrection actually touches them all, almost as if there's kind of no part of time that is left unchanged by this thing. What happened then guarantees what's next. And so reshapes the what now. That's where we're heading. I hope you're up for it. Because I've got to tell you, as far as subjects go, it doesn't get more important than resurrection. And, and I mean, that really comes across loud and clear from chapter 15 here in 1 Corinthians. It's like the climax of the entire letter. Uh, almost as if Paul's kind of chosen to leave the most important thing until the very end. And he's writing this basically because there's some within the Corinthian church uh, who have fallen into grave error. Seems they were, they were actually denying the reality of resurrection. Because the major Greek philosophies back in that day, they, they, they viewed bodily resurrection as a bit of a ridiculous idea, like a, an absurdity. You might remember uh, last year when we were working through the book of Acts, um, in chapter 17, Paul is, is, is giving this grand speech in the city of Athens, addressing the Areopagus. And um, the moment he loses the crowd that day is the moment he started speaking about resurrection. That's actually what got him shouted down. Because to the Greeks, the thought of resurrection wasn't a nice idea, it was actually a ghastly one. Like, who would want to be stuck back in a body like this? So that was likely the kind of pressure that the Corinthian church might have been under. And it, and it seemed that some were willing to actually turf the whole idea. Maybe they thought it would make Christianity more plausible to their neighbours. I don't know. We're not told. But chapter 15 is basically Paul saying, hang on a second. You can't do that. 
and he says it about in about a strongest the strongest possible way like it's it's quite a stark defense and paul's saying the reality of resurrection is not up for debate it's it's not something you can quibble over it's not just some blemish that you can lance from the surface if you don't like it resurrection is actually the beating heart of the christian faith and so to lose that is actually to lose everything paul says And he begins his defense of resurrection by recalling the past, by reminding the Corinthians of what happened then. Now, we didn't get to read it, but if you've got your Bible open there, and I hope you do, just flick to the start of the chapter. From verse 3, we can see that that Paul actually reminds them of the gospel. It's going to be up on the screen as well. And I want you to just note as we... I'm not going to read the whole thing, but as as you look at, at the passage... Just make note of the verse, the verbs that he uses. Christ died, he was buried, was raised, and he appeared. And then notice, though, what Paul's emphasis is as he continues to explain. The final verb there actually gets repeated three more times. Appeared, appeared, appeared. It's like he really wants them to remember that Christ's resurrected body appeared. He really rose, in other words. Like, really, really. That's what happened then. The claim that Christ was resurrected is a historical one, right? It's rooted at a real time, in a real place, to a real people. He really rose, and and that's important. (laughs) I mean, Paul actually says, you can see it there in verse 3, it's of first importance, And then basically he spends the rest of the chapter explaining why. There's a refreshing bluntness to the way Tim Keller puts it when he says this, you know, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. You see, everything hinges on the reality of resurrection. And that's exactly Paul's point that he makes to the confused Corinthians. It's like, without the resurrection, the gospel is a lie, Paul says. Without resurrection, we are still in our sins. Without resurrection, the dead are lost. And then verse 19, which started our reading, without resurrection, we are of all people most to be pitied. Ouch. And that's why Paul stresses again and again and again, Jesus' resurrected body appeared. Because resurrection is the beating heart of the Christian faith. And because without it, we actually have nothing. And we can't simply dismiss it as just some kind of fanciful wish fulfillment. It's rooted in historical fact. This thing happened, right? And it was attested to by the hundreds of people that he appeared to in different places at different times. He really rose. That's what happened then. And because of that, because he really rose, then you will too. You will too. That's where Paul turns to next, to the future. So now turn with me to verses 22 and 23. See what he says next. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. 
but each in turn, Christ, the first fruits, and then when He comes, those who belong to Him. Notice there the in Him language that Paul's using, and it kind of brings with it the promise of our own resurrection. When we are united to Christ's resurrection, we too will be raised. And there's no ifs, there's no buts, there's no maybes about it. It's a guarantee. As surely as Christ rose, so too will all those who are in Him. Now, I'm not much of a gardener. My wife can freely attest to that. But we have a seven-year-old son who is. And he's uh, growing strawberries at the moment. And uh, he loves checking them every morning and coming in and giving us a report. And there's always that first morning when he comes kind of screaming into the house, out of breath, elated by the discovery of the first strawberry. Of course, it's not just the first strawberry that he's excited about. It's the, it's the promise that the first strawberry is making because it means there's more strawberries to come. He's excited because it's proof that his little garden patch that he's been tending to for so long, that it's actually working. The sun, the soil, the water, it's working. And this first strawberry confirms it. That's exactly the kind of image that Paul is using as he refers to Jesus' resurrection as the first fruits. Exactly the same kind of idea, right? Jesus walking from his tomb was the first event of its kind in the whole history of the universe. It was the first, but it will not be the last. There will be plenty more where that came from. Just like the first strawberry of the season, Jesus' resurrection is the promise of more to come. There's no ifs, there's no buts, there's no maybes. All those who are in Him, all those who are united to Him in His resurrection, like Him, they too will rise. Because what happened then guarantees what's next. The natural question that follows may well be, well, what is that actually going to look like to be resurrected? And we're not the only ones that might have that curiosity. Paul actually anticipates that question from the Corinthians there in 35. You can see he says, but, but someone will ask, well, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? You know, it's like, are we talking about reanimated corpses here? How's God going to resurrect a decaying body? Like, that sounds tricky. How's that going to work? What are the practicalities? What about those people who've been cremated? What's that going to look like? You might have asked that question before. Here's what Paul says, verse 36, how foolish. <laughs> it's like, wow, thanks, Paul. Tell us what you really think. But then he goes on, and for the second time in this passage, actually draws on a gardening image to give an answer to this question. He says, as a seed is to its blooming flower so our present bodies will be when compared to our resurrected bodies. The seed is a great image, right? Because when you look at a seed, it's, it's pretty impossible to tell what it's going to become, isn't it? Like the uh, Texas mountain laurel, for instance. It's got a bit of a reputation for having uh, particularly ugly seeds. <laughs> These long kind of gross pods 
gradually end up turning black and wither and then out pops the seed at some point. And, and, and looking at it, there's, there's really no hint that it's eventually going to become this. There's a pretty huge difference, isn't it? And yet the seed and the flower actually remain closely connected, don't they? Like one was actually born out of the other. And, and the flower is not a rejection of the seed. It's really just the end goal, isn't it? It's, it's, it's the final fulfillment of everything that the seed was meant to become. It takes on a new color, a new scent, a new size, a new shape. But, but the two are never entirely separated. They remain, they remain deeply connected. And in verse 42, Paul says, well, so it will be with the resurrection of the dead. So it will be. A tremendous newness. The body that is sown is perishable, he says. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, but it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, but it's raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Newness. Astounding and wondrous newness. And yet, there's continuity as well. Like in your resurrected body, you will still be you. Recognizably and distinctly you. So like when Christ appeared to his disciples, they could still recognize that it was him. Sometimes it took them a little while to do that. But, you know, the relationships and the memories and the experiences that they'd shared together, that was all carried across because he was still Jesus. It was still him, but in a new and different and entirely better body. So it will be with us. I guess the final question it leads us to is this. What difference does knowing that make to us now? If what happened then guarantees what's next, then it really ought to also reshape the what now. Why is that? Well, because now we have hope. You know, sometimes when we say, I hope, we're really saying more like, I wish, aren't we? Like, as if we're hoping for a particular outcome, but we're not really sure what that outcome's going to be, but we're hoping that it's going to be like that. That is not at all like how the Bible talks about Christian hope. Christian hope is not just some kind of wishful thinking. It's actually to align your head and your heart with an assured future. It's not a maybe, it's a certainty. I found this definition this week uh, by a guy called J.I. Packer. haven't been able to get it out of my head since. I, I love how he puts it. He says, Christian hope expresses knowledge that every day of this life and every moment beyond it, the believer can say with truth, on the basis of God's own commitment, that the best is yet to come. I love that. The best is yet to come. I wonder though, is that what you believe? And I don't just mean what you agree with in your mind, that's easy, but do you live it out in your heart, that idea? 
every area, every corner of your life, is it shaped by the knowledge that the best is yet to come? And what would it look like if it was? The first way I think this living hope reshapes the what now is how it comforts those living with loss. Now, I know there are people here who every day have to face up to the loss of living with bodies and minds that are constantly breaking down in various ways. So when Paul says these bodies are weak, when he says they're perishable, when he says they're dishonorable, we say amen to that, don't we? Some of us loud, more loudly than others. And we're surrounded by it, this reality, right? The limitations and the vulnerabilities of the body, especially especially in the middle of a global pandemic, right? That's just obvious, isn't it? However we might be feeling about our body right now, we, all of us, will be confronted with its frailties eventually, in one way or another. So to everyone living with loss, with pain, with the struggle of life in this body, the certain hope of the resurrection actually offers us comfort it really does. Do not despair because the best is yet to come. The day is soon, Paul says in verse 52. Take a look. When we all will be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. And so on that day, your pain is actually going to come to an end. Your tears are going to be dried and what is now weak will then be strong. What is now dishonorable will then be made glorious forever. So may your certain hope in the next bring you comfort in the now. I think another way this hope reshapes the present is the way that it challenges those living for lots. Our world kind of operates at this frantic, as, like in this kind of frantic scramble, just to cram as much of this world into its pockets as it, as it can. I don't know if you've noticed that, but, you know, when, 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 when this life is all there is, and, and when death really is the end, then, then that means every moment matters more than the last. Paul explains this implication. If... The dead are not raised, he says in verse 32. Then let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. That, that's the tyranny of time, friends. There's only so much of it, and we actually don't know how much is left. And so in response, our world just kind of operates at this breakneck pace, driven by the frantic scramble to have more, to do more, to see more, to, to own more, to accomplish more, to experience more. Why? <laughs> because the time is running out. And you know, if this life is all there is, then living for lots makes complete sense. But it doesn't for us. Not for those who are in Him. Not for those who are united to Christ's resurrection. Why? Well, because we've got a certain hope, don't we? We know that the best is yet to come, that this life is not all there is. In fact, we ain't seen nothing yet. 
So just think of yourself for a moment, a little moment of honesty on your own. All the areas of your life, whether that's your family or your work or your relationships or your leisure or your money or just your time, how easily and how often are we prone to forget that the best is yet to come? We so easily just let ourselves get swept up and carried along by the frantic scramble that's going on all around us. And we let ourselves get drawn into that ever-present fear that I'm somehow going to miss out on something. So ask yourself this, honestly. What good things have you sacrificed in the name of that fear? Or what God things... Have you left by the wayside because you figured you don't have the time? Friends, if the best is yet to come, then you cannot and you will not miss out. Not even a little bit. Because time is actually not running out. Not for those who are in Christ. The clock's actually stopped. It stopped the moment the tomb was emptied. From the moment Jesus rose from the dead, we're now running on eternity time. <laughs> it's a completely different time zone to the one that our world operates in. Rather than living for lots, Paul calls on the Corinthians to live for the Lord. Such a great end to this chapter, the final verse in uh, verse 58. He says this, Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And it's not in vain because it's not going to pass away. Just like you. So, you know, as that frantic scramble continues to play out around us, and it will, don't let it move you. Instead, stand firm in the certain hope of your coming resurrection. You know, a final way I think this hope reshapes the what now is in the way that it calls to those living lost. By which I mean to those who live without this kind of hope. So I guess at this point I'm talking to the people here this morning, the people here online, who are really not sure what happens next. The gospel of Jesus, it makes an extraordinary claim. And it reaches its crescendo here at the end of chapter 15 where he says these words, Paul, Paul says these words, they're some of my favorite in all of Scripture. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? Friends, that is an extraordinary claim to make. That Jesus, who died and was buried and raised and who then appeared and appeared and appeared, that in doing so, he actually managed to put death to death. Imagine if that was actually true. What a difference that would make to your life. What a difference that would make to your death. Friends, the, the resurrection is a reality. It's not some fanciful pipe dream. It's actually the beating heart of the Christian faith. And all it takes for you to share in Christ's victory is to take up the promise of your own resurrection and be in Him. 
to be in Him means really to unite your life with His. It means coming to Him. It means confessing that you desperately need His death and resurrection. And then it's committing to follow Him with the rest of your life. Maybe you've always suspected that there could be something after death. Or perhaps you've just been hoping, wishing that there might be. I'm here to tell you today that Jesus' resurrection guarantees that it is. And it invites you to join in. So if you want to be in Him, but you're sitting there this morning and you know that you're not, I would love to chat. Perhaps this week call the office, connect with us online, or if you're in the building here, you can come find me straight after this. That'd be something worth doing. Friends, I started by asking about your relationship to time, but perhaps a better question is, what's your relationship to the resurrection? Because the reality of resurrection fundamentally transforms the way we think about time, doesn't it? What happened then guarantees what's next and radically reshapes the what now. Past, present and future. Everything changed the day Christ rose from the dead. So may we all be those who live hope-shaped lives, content in the knowledge that the best really is yet to come. Let's pray. Father God, what a magnificent vision of hope you hold out to us in this chapter of Scripture we've been meditating and chewing on together this morning. What an amazing picture of hope, Father, to know that this is not all there is, that the best is yet to come, and that our own resurrection is guaranteed because you rose your Son from the grave. May we be those, Lord, who take comfort in that knowledge. May we be those who resist the frantic scramble of a world who thinks it's running out of time. May we be those, Lord, who cling to you, who unite ourselves to you, and in doing so are united to your, to your son's resurrection. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.